0: Regular hours, episode 163 for May 18th, 2021. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Maskless, Chip has some flow.
1: And I'm Pam Bador, who has hugged a lot of people this week.
0: Chip, this is the best Zoom meeting we've we've had in the last 15 months. Your your sound is so clear. Your picture is so clear. It's almost as if I'm here. <gasps> Chip is here in the studio. This is amazing. This we we are definitely to a, a plateau. Hopefully to a, a point where we are pivoting away from this pandemic. Chip, it sounds like a road trip towards Connecticut. I'm just throwing that out. Road trip to Connecticut.
1: Ooh, I like it.
0: You, you got your studio all set up for us, Pam. We're gonna. Um.
1: We'll
0: all, we'll all hang out in the
2: closet. <laughs> <laughs> That's the old place. We'll, we'll have to set up our studio on the uh, campus. Do you have a patio? Do you have a, a deck? Do we, can, we, uh, can we sit
0: out in nature in Connecticut? Is that a we thing? We most that...
1: certainly can. Oh, we do have boy. nature here.
0: There's oh, beaches boy. there too. But for today, before we get to Connecticut, today we are still in the Calculating Stars from 2018, Mary Robinette Kowal's award-winning story of young people and uh, s- uh, some seasoned people trying to get into space and part three is all about the struggle to get into space and
2: uh boy it's uh the struggle is real here right and i'll just go ahead and say it from my opinion and my opinion only i could edit this entire section
1: out <laughs> <laughs> <Shant>. <laughs>
2: come on i just want to get to space come on man (laughs) you want the action right you want the the action movie we got these women and we've got you know we the the earth is ending slowly Uh and then we got to get them to space and i just keep going like okay let's all right what do we need to do well we know there's got to be tests involved to determine if they're fit to be able to do it we know there's training involved to be able to um to make sure we get these astronauts. We know we got building of these rockets. There's all things going on. And what I get is birthday parties and and, uh, celebrations and yeah, all sorts of like like stuff that's, in my opinion, kind of on the periphery.
1: Okay, but Chip, come on. A couple of things that happen in this section. First of all, there's the rocket crash. I mean, that's a huge, huge deal. Cause here's what, I mean, I'm thinking, okay, Elma knows that the climate's going to change. Like we have to put resources into getting humans off the earth. And every time you have something, and it's very normal to have some failures in a very giant program like this. And every time there's a failure, you lose public backing. So, I mean, I thought that was really, really powerful. And then you also get an anti-space terrorist Who threatens to blow up a launch, to to blow up a a rocket on launch? And those, I mean, come on, how much more action packed can we get than that, my friend?
2: And the North Carolina guy, uh, the senator, was a senator representative? It doesn't really matter. He's just, yeah, very North Carolina. I didn't say that. I'm just I, saying. I thought
0: it. I thought it while I was reading. Oh, it. Well, I, I thought of you, friend.
2: No. Welcome <laughs> oh, welcome to the oh, <laughs> Masks are off. The gloves are off. Are. No, I. I um, yeah, he certainly was a piece of work, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I think what the
0: author has done here is give us a singular perspective—the perspective from this one character and her life has changed as a result of this trauma, but her life is also going forward. There are still these feelings about going to these meetings, about having, you know, can I, should I go and meet with these pilots, these women who are working toward this, or do I feel like I'm ostracized? I think that you are seeing it as I need to see the broader picture. And the author is very carefully carving out that we are going to see elma's life and in 1956 elma's life would be very different from 2018 and 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 i know what you're going to say next because you said it earlier go ahead say it well well
2: this this may have been better to take place now in a current as opposed to at this this. i, I don't understand why we needed to go to the past because we're not really exploring the past at all we're not exploring the, the 1950s we we have this alternate time frame, but I'm not sure if it's adding to the drama of, of what's going on.
1: Well, Chip, I mean, I think, though, that we are getting a sense that we in 2020, where women are involved in the space program rather significantly, that didn't come out of nowhere. Right. And so there is a way that I think Kowal is exploring sort of the legacy of feminism, of roadblocks, and also like the space program. As I was reading this set in 1957, it really made me think about how little we've done with space exploration in the past 50 years. So in 1971, when people were writing about, like, what would space look like in 2020, they were thinking we would 100% have colonies on Mars by now. Like, that was absolutely the prediction. And that's not where it's gone. I'm not saying, I mean, we've done some amazing things, and I'm not trying to, to, Um, demean all of the amazing work that's happened. But we haven't put the kinds of resources into space travel that people thought we would 50 years ago. And I think that's part of what she's getting at, too.
2: And I, I think you're absolutely right there. Because on some level, when we landed on the moon, had a person walk around and come back, in many ways, that's where it ended mm-hmm. and we we right? didn't, we didn't yeah. say, now I'm sure a person who works for NASA would say no these are all the things that we've done mm-hmm. and we certainly I'm sure have done many amazing things but you're right we, we just don't have it's not like we have a, a large space group. station the space station's pretty impressive but we still have I mean just a few people up there it's not like we have a colony yeah it's not like there's um, you know th- there's a, a city of 3,000 people working up there right
0: when when one astronaut goes up for a year and that becomes, you know, the record for the amount of time that a human being has been off of the earth mm-hmm. is one year. Where are we headed? What's what's the next thing? I, I don't disagree with you about that. I, I wonder how much of that is economics, is the idea that why would we spend money on going to the moon? We've been to the moon. Why, why would we go to the moon again? This is an issue that's current, right?
2: was it Charlie Wilson's war? There was a movie based on a true story about Charlie Wilson, who had taken um, basically all these small little projects, eventually built like a, a billion dollars. I'm just throwing a number out. It's probably more than that worth of off the books programs. So I, I, my, my guess is many of the space stuff that's going on. Maybe it's not part of the general boat. Maybe it's in the black area. I, hmm. I, I just don't know. And uh, most of us wouldn't. I, I, I do know that science fiction kind of takes away a little bit because we see all these things in books and in our minds and what we've done, but really we're still at the infancy of what we can really do in space. And one book that we're
0: not going to read, but I am going to suggest is Daniel Suarez wrote a book about this concept. It's called Influx. Okay. It was published in 2014. And in it, there's this fictional covert organization known as the Bureau of Technology Control whereby all sorts of technological things have been happening since we got to the moon, mm-hmm. but they've been kept from the public because <gasps> the upheaval that it would trigger seems to be something that some people would want to
2: control. Like a, like a pipeline of gas uh, going through the Southeast. Having, I'm just throwing that out there. Having control over that might be a good
0: idea instead of uh, uh, malware that cost you $5 million to to fix
2: just make another incentive. Maybe it could happen again. Oh, boy.
1: Well, that sounds that sounds interesting. And I haven't heard of that novel. So I'm putting it on my I'm putting it on my list. But I think that right now we're at such an interesting moment in the history, the ongoing developing history of space travel, because today, We have quite a lot of private money. It's not only state actors who are involved in space programs. So I I was curious what, I mean, I don't follow this as closely as I probably could and should, but do you guys see, where do you see the future of space travel and exploration going? How much of it is going to revert to private investment rather than state-sponsored investigations?
2: Is Elon Musk private investment? I mean, it's really, that's where it gets really interesting about the the amount of money that was put towards Elon Musk's Mm -hmm. goals, but on the grand scheme of things, you could see Bezos and Elon Musk, or Mm -hmm. Bezos is uh, uh, Amazon's founder. And so, yeah, I do think that there's going to be private exploration, or at least trying to harness some of the um, materials from outer space. But we're also having this point where, you know, China just landed, as far as our recording, just landed on Mars um a rover yeah
0: not not a person, not a a rover. person.
2: but w- at what point do you start claiming territories like this is now you know think of antarctica how it's kind of divided up mm-hmm. like you know this is the united states and this is another country's version so they can do that type of testing do planets i, I there's got to be some some kind of agreement on that who gets to claim the resources from an area that gets it, it, it gets you know that gets
0: landed on it's a big question for sure when an asteroid comes through and it's full of gold it, who gets to be able to claim that gold you know is that something that might happen
2: yeah that guy from diehard steve he gets he gets to bring it <laughs> This is Armageddon. Was this is, this, is Armageddon I was thinking gonna, Deep Impact. I can't going, remember what it
0: was. We're going to Armageddon now and Bruce Willis is going to save us all. <laughs> and then and then Steven Tyler is going to sing a song about his daughter that's really creepy. Great. <laughs> Great.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was thinking the exact same thing, Steve. <laughs> when I hear about that movie, I'm like, oh, creepy song. So you guys, it seems to me that part of what Koala is doing in this novel is really thinking about the question of like, what makes us, Focus on space exploration? Does it have to be a big disaster? Does it have to be something like the Cold War and the competitiveness of that? Could the climate crisis be used rhetorically to really impel much more commitment to exploration of space?
0: Is that happening? Is that why we are looking at space as much as we are from the, from the billionaire perspective? To
2: boldly go where no person has gone before. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this, <laughs> this this rhetoric. Where are we? Who are we? What are we doing? Is the economics of it viable? Should we be investing
2: in it? Well, well, there's there's a couple of things that we could certainly many things we could talk about, but on one level, yeah, the economics is having those resources may allow us to to do things. Imagine a world where we don't have to use fossil fuels. Imagine a world where, you know, trash is not really an issue where it's, it's um, so, I mean, there there are things that we could potentially get from using lighter metals or better metals or whatever that we could, we can pull from mm-hmm. outer space. But there's also, you know, that, that exploration part, just because we're humans and we're curious to go out and, and see things. And certainly during our lifetime, I think that we will, we will have a human walk Mars. I, I believe
0: that. I it, I truly I believe that it will happen in our lifetime,
2: even though we're old. But where that ultimately goes, I mean, I mean, we're just a blip in mm-hmm. humanity's history. Yeah. So we're not going to be able to see what what it's going to be like three thousand years from now, or yeah. ten thousand years from now. But certainly, unless the singularity happens, that's right. Well, he, here's an ethical thing: Is it okay to go to a, a place like Mars and create an atmosphere? You're changing, you're changing a planet. The Prime Directive says
0: that you can change the atmosphere as long as you're not affecting the people, and there's no people, so well, I, I mean, think you're fine.
2: We, we're there are living things there. Is it okay to are to there?
0: They're living things on Mars.
2: There are. <gasps> They're anybody. <itty-bitty.
1: laughs> They're microbial.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, is it okay to go and? I don't know. Is terraform the right word? Yeah. Um, the the ability to, to build an atmosphere, the ability to change a celestial body. I mean,
1: love that you go there, Chip. And I think it's interesting so far. And we're only in book one of this trilogy. Kowal isn't even thinking about that from Elma's perspective. The Earth is about to expire. Therefore, we've got to find another place to live. So, and I think I mean that's the argument that's being made, and so the sort of ethical question of how we think about existing humans and humans of the future then is weighed against the ethical concerns of microbial life
0: and we are certainly looking from a female perspective. This is a very feminist perspective in this book. And the idea of who should go into space becomes a a big part of this section. And in my opinion, Chip, I think that humans will set foot on the face of Mars in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. And I believe that the first human to do so will be a female human. I think that it's important that we bring equality and equity into space travel and I think that Mary Robin Kowal is writing from a feminist perspective in this book that it's important to
2: see the equity and equality in the genders. So I, I I think that she talks a little bit about that. I, I don't necessarily think gender specific is important, but I do think that if you think of pilots, so pilots have a, a certain height, weight. They are not um, Sasquatch like, like Steve and I. Yeah, we are not pilots. Yes, I mean, they would have <laughs> just, to
0: disclaimer. Chip and I are not
2: pilots. So, so you would have to be a, a bigger. You have to build a much bigger. Um, but big doesn't really matter in space because I mean it's just whatever it is. There are female jockeys. Mm-hmm. Okay, there are female pilots. So I, I think that it's perfectly reasonable to assume that we will have mixed sexes. Going in, so male and female making the, this journey. I think the argument of this, if they're going to colonize another planet, that um, yes, I think you have to have both sexes to think, be able to do that. I think that's how that works. Yeah, I, th- I mean, unless it's magic. Right. I, I heard it's magic, but <laughs> but I mean, I, I think that that's a. I think it's perfectly reasonable to assume that that uh, that we will have good people mm-hmm. doing it, the uh, right people, as as opposed to. Uh, gender uh, specific.
0: I, I absolutely agree. But I think that we need to make sure that we look for the right people and find the right people and not discount half of the people on the planet, a little more than half of the people on the planet, as Kowal is kind of showing us that they were doing in this alternative history Well, in the past.
1: And that's exactly why she wrote this as an alternative history instead of setting it in 2020, I think, is because, of course, today, I don't think you would consider sending off a big uh, I mean, think about all the recent movies of people going to uh, movies and TV series of people going to to Mars. And there have been quite a number and they all have mixed gender crews.
2: Mm-hmm. Maybe they'll have Katie Sackow. <laughs> Starbuck. Star.
0: Hillary <laughs> Swank, in a way. <laughs> Hillary Swank. Hillary Swank. She she made a great astronaut for sure. She Anna, did. <laughs> Anna
1: Kendrick.
0: Anna Kendrick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah.
2: So they're all like good looking. and
1: uh, Well, okay,
0: we're talking about Hollywood.
1: Uh, (laughs) George Clooney's like still floating out there. (laughs) Now, not to take us away from this very important question of representations of hot astronauts on TV. But Kowal also is really, really interested. And I think she kind of doubles down on her interest in mental health. And, um, and how we talk and think about mental health in this novel, I was really impressed with this part of, of the novel.
2: So I was thinking differently on this because I recognize how challenging it is when you start going up uh, military programs mm-hmm. and NASA programs too, and all the physical requirements and the mental requirements. And she did a really good job when we went through. a a test in there where something was placed in her ear and she had to regurgitate all the the stuff that she had to do. They were asking her questions and she was responding. Certainly it was a very stressful situation for her. But when you start getting to the top of the people who qualify for that and knowing the resources it takes to build a spaceship and or a, a fighter jet or any types of uh, I, I think that that she would have been disqualified I couldn't imagine she would be able to make it through her um, those tests because they would find somebody who's got similar skills but may not have the anxiety issue she has mm-hmm. even though the anxiety issues are was based on not necessarily the flying, right? Correct. She's a great pilot. She shows off how well she can handle
0: the aircraft. It's just when she's in a public speaking sort of situation where she has anxiety, sure. And that would not be a part of the
2: space program, except for she is the face of this movement of the lady astronaut. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna not double down. I'm gonna I'm gonna may, maybe take back. There was a reason. Who was the, the astronaut that spoke? Is it John Glenn? They chose one of the astronauts to speak to the public because he because he was more comfortable mm-hmm. speaking to the public than the others. Because were. that's a part of the job. So maybe, maybe I'm yeah, maybe I'm just wrong. And I we'll just note that that
1: you-
2: <laughs> I could be possibly wrong. Um, Let
1: it be noted on May 18th, <laughs> 2021. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but but chip i really like that point that you're making and i think that at this time it was the, we just didn't have like in the 1950s we did have anti-anxiety medication but it was never ever talked about and i don't even think it would have been asked about because the assumption was anyone who's functioning at the level that elma does she's not taking anti-anxiety medication. Like that would just be the assumption. Whereas today we know so much more about mental health and discuss it so much more openly. Mm -hmm. question would get asked and it would be in people's medical files and decisions would be made or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think that's part of what Koala is getting at. It's a really different world in so many ways, including how little we talk about mental health. There's this great quotation where Elma says, uh, Elma's thinking to herself, taking the pill was a sign that I had failed. No matter what the doctor said about anxiety being a genuine illness, I couldn't shake my mother's voice. What will people think? What would my husband think? I mean, she hasn't even told Nathaniel, who she has a fantastic relationship with, that she's taking this medication.
2: And isn't that an amazing awareness?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I, I, I think that you, we've we've talked about it through all of her books, but if we can think about mental health, like we think about going to the dentist, uh-huh. where uh, you go to the dentist, what do you need? You need to go twice a year, get your teeth cleaned. Why? Because your mouth is important to you. Mm-hmm. Mental health to our current generations. And, and she's describing how maybe our generation, you know, Many people think of working with a counselor or something as a failure on their part, yep. as opposed to learning tools to be able to deal with the challenges you have in life and learning to ask the right questions and learning to get to the source of what the challenge is that's preventing you from moving forward or being, you know, whatever it is, happy as I am or or whatever, however you're going to find your, um, your point of bliss. I, this is that was, that's a very poignant uh, quote.
0: And, and this section is all about that mental health. She is struggling with the idea of taking medication. She sees it as a, a failure. And, and that is something that, that I understand as a Generation X person who's, you know, self—you you need to take care of yourself. Pol- S- self medicating, Steve. Is this the moment? Okay, here's the moment. <laughs> here's the moment where you need to take care of yourself, and you know what you should do: yeah. exercise. You know what you should eat, but uh, boy, there's 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 failures in some of those areas in this room.
2: That 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 is our hope for our children's generation. Uh-huh that how we're looking at health in general Mm -hmm. moves from uh, a lifestyle as opposed to basically let's solve whatever the issue is at this moment with here here take your pill or or you know somehow we'll just cut out the fat and you're no longer fat that's certainly not a healthy no strategy on how to deal with that yeah
0: so we've got some things happening in our post meteorite lifestyle here. There are food riots at the beginning of this section. We had a cliffhanger at the end of part two where we stopped and and they saw something was happening and they walked away. In the beginning of this section, there are food riots. There's food insecurity in this story, something that we are very familiar with in our
2: current pandemic. For many families, mm-hmm. I. I- when I listen to the food riots, I think back to some stories that my my grandmother was telling me. My grandfather during World War II was stationed over in Italy, and my uh, grandmother would uh, save her meat rations mm-hmm. and send over things like canned meat, like Spam, and that was a delicacy at the time and certainly a treat to have. But you know, these care packages meant a lot to my grandfather. My, my grandmother was willing to to sacrifice. So, what this in my opinion, what this is going through is those food rationings. And she says it somewhere in the book mm-hmm. where basically it's, it's a continuation of what was going on during World War II. Obviously, making sure everyone has food and trying to, to, to work with producing that, that food is, is, is a challenge. And it's almost the same as the, the wartime mentality.
1: I think there's also a lot of anxiety here on Elma's part because we're only four years after the meteorite. The climate has only just begun to change as a result of the meteorite. And already crops have been so impacted that the that food supply has dramatically changed. And so you think like there are food riots in 1956, 57. What's it going to be like by the time we get to the 1960s in this alternate reality? It's a terrifying thought. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Right now, she's just put it into like some very small spaces, but, you know, into like the little news item of the chapter. But I imagine that this is going to become more and more substantial as we move through certainly this book, but especially if we read the whole trilogy, because one could expect that as pressures on the supply chain increase, we're also going to get pressures to stop going into space. It's so expensive. We need to focus on, you know, creating more food for people. So this is like, this is one of the, this is a very interesting backdrop to this science fiction story.
2: And I, I dropped this quite a bit. There's three bread baskets in the world that could produce enough food for the entire world. So the United States has one and that's the big Midwest. That's And Brazil has one. The challenge is you have to get it from you know, up top, down the mountains, to and then Russia has one. And there's challenges as a shortened growing season. But if you think about that, so we have three bread baskets that could potentially feed the entire world, but also recognizing that's the, the Sahara Desert on top of Africa. That was all forest at one time. So the earth changes till, weather changed, whatever ended up happening. So that's all sand now. So that doesn't produce anything mm-hmm. so there's where the um the change in the atmosphere potentially and, and that's where the fear comes in is that any one of them could create you know imagine the the, the midwest becoming of the sahara desert or or russia becoming the sahara desert that certainly creates a change in the world that is so significant
1: mm-hmm. yeah. and climate climate scientists do imagine that they don't just imagine it they actually have models that predict it hmm which is exactly, you know, this is a very strong backdrop to this book written in 2018.
0: There's some joy in this section where we find out that Great Aunt Esther is alive and she's in South Carolina, South Carolina, Chips, not, not North Carolina, the, the, the bad Carolina. Oh, not right? the bad Carolina, no?
2: the Bubba Carolina.
0: Oh, the North Carolina is better, right? Of course. I mean, it's North. <laughs> she's alive that they have a celebration of joy and then the grief of elma didn't know for five years she just assumed that her family was reduced it was just her and herschel in california and now they find this great aunt esther and they find out that elma's grandmother had survived the meteorite for a period of time as well and there's there's that mix of joy and grief here i enjoy this section
2: for the characterizations for these moments so if we think back you know when all this started like was it dc uh parts of virginia Mm -hmm. it's very reasonable to think because i think didn't she say she was from charleston south carolina I think she did. Anyway, Charleston, South Carolina is on the coast, so the, the idea that that may not exist anymore, and that is where the family could be from, I think it's pretty reasonable to assume. You know, if you didn't hear from them, that they they no longer exist, right?
1: I think we focus here a lot because it's a the entire novel is focalized through Elma's perspective. We focus on her personal grief, but I think that there's like in the background there's this sense of cultural grief, and when we Think about that, like imagine losing, I mean, most of the Eastern seaboard and most of its inhabitants are just gone. You know, it's a, it, it's a shocking thing to consider when you think about the amount of cultural grief and trauma, for example, that happened at 9-11. It seemed like such a, just an enormous cost of human life, But when you think about a disaster like this, it's just a blip compared to something like this. And so I do feel like, I think that Kowal is very subtle in the way she represents the the broader cultural grief. And I mean, I'm not sure how I feel about it because I like the focus on the personal grief like you do, Steve. I like it very much. I feel like I'd be curious to have a little bit more discussion or description or pointing to that bigger trauma for the entire country.
0: And I believe that's what Chip's issue with this section is too. Yeah. The broader story yeah. is, is, would be more interesting to you and and maybe to Pam as well. I love the individual story. Right. I think the individual story, the character, it's all about characters for me. We, we've had this conversation for almost <laughs> a year. I need a character whom I care about, and at this moment, I care about Elma and her very narrow focus.
2: So, so Philadelphia did survive. So Rocky Balboa can can still exist. <laughs> Good.
0: I got I got chills down my spine when when the author turns us to yet another very narrow, very specific, moment where Elma is in public and she's already anxious about being in public and somebody realizes who she is and turns to her. And Elma thinks to us, the the reader, oh boy, here it goes. She's going to say, she saw me on TV and she admires me, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to have this moment. And then the author turns it on us. And instead it is a childhood friend who recognizes her as elma wexler from when they were 10 years old they this touching moment this
2: moment of nostalgia in the middle of this broader issue and when they said they didn't discuss their parents mm-hmm. that was part of that like oh yes don't ask
0: anymore yeah
2: oh what what an adult what an adult realization Mm -hmm. Oh, certainly. Yeah. You don't ask that question anymore because
0: you know how many people are suffering and you just don't ask anymore. You wait, maybe, maybe somebody will say my parents are doing well, but you don't ask anymore. That's, I think we're going to get to that point with our pandemic right now is we're not going to ask, how are your parents? Because they might
2: not be anymore. Well, in fact, last night I was out and that was one of those questions, the person I was talking to had lost like four or five family members during this time. And what do you say uh, other than I'm sorry? Yeah.
0: Yeah. What, what do you say? I despise the, I'm sorry. I I understand what you mean by that, but it it's so meaningless to the person who you're speaking to. And and I, I just, those words get me. It's like a Facebook like though. Mm -hmm. It's basically an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement. I understand that, but what do you say what what words are there and and she is doing a great job of showing us how that trauma is playing upon us
1: i thought it was very interesting when we find out that herschel had polio as a child which had she mentioned that earlier or that came as news to me in this part 3
2: i want to say it was important because fdr had polio and mm-hmm. i think it was just an acknowledgement of the t- the time period Mm -hmm. and that we still were dealing with many of the diseases or challenges that vaccinations have made such a a wonderful progress to eliminate.
0: Uh, Let me answer your question, Pam. She did mention it before, but she did it in such a subtle way okay. that but I, I missed it. <laughs> did not bring it up when it came up because I knew what she was doing. She mentioned his crutches.
1: Yes, I knew that he was on crutches, but I didn't know why until this.
0: This was the moment where she she's doing the magic of the reveal here okay. and showing us this character is suffering his own issues and has his own trauma to deal with and her childhood of being the sister of somebody suffering from polio she has some background to tell
2: us about how children work here could it could it also be saying or could the author also be trying to articulate that suffering is just part of the human existence hmm. that we're always having we're, we're surrounded at any point with some form of suffering hmm. And some suffering is, I want to say milder, maybe maybe to the individual right. debilitating, but certainly the end of a world is much grander than a, a, an individual suffering. But on the grand, I mean, on, on the, the big part of it, you know, life is a mixture of, you know, whatever blessings you, you have at the moment and some form of suffering that you have to work through. Yes, I do love this book, Chip. You're sure. right. Excuse me. Let me, let me take the tear on my eye.
0: Good job, Chip. Okay. You found, you found it. Uh-oh. You found a good message in this part that you, that you thought we could just jettison out the, <laughs> out the airlock. That's fine.
1: By the way, in totally unrelated news, but I just want to share with you guys, I was talking about the COVID vaccine with my mom this week, and she told me that she had polio as a child and she remembers when the vaccine came out and she was fine. But I never knew that. How did we never have this conversation? It was just normal. A conversation with my 75-year-old mother before, and I'm reading about Herschel's polio. It was just one of those like weird synergistic moments where I thought, whoa, what a strange world we live in.
2: That's what the book club can do, Pam.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: all of a sudden, all these things that you never knew, all of a sudden get revealed somewhere. And you're going, to like, how in the world did I not know that? And, and <laughs> I, I got to say, that's the power of reading. That is the power of books.
0: Because those conversations that that have those links because we're reading this book, I, I love those moments. What I also love is the
2: audiobook version of
0: this. Are you, Chip, are you listening to the audiobook version of this? I am.
2: And I'm listening to that wonderful Southern accent that just captures it probably not very well but you know what it's just a southern accent
0: you're not okay with her southern accent it doesn't matter
2: it it is like everyone else they butcher a southern accent
0: okay the author is the reader the narrator of the audiobook and she is a professional voice actor and puppeteer and I admire the heck out of her ability to do all of the different voices
1: Pam are you listening to the audiobook version no I'm actually reading the print copy this time
2: okay and I'm watching the puppet version of this, Dave. I would I would love the heck out of a puppet version of this. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Uh, 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 that would be fantastic.
0: That would make this so much better if it was puppets. You know how much I love puppets. I, I love puppetry. I, I think I I admire the heck out of puppeteers. I have so many puppeteer friends on Facebook because I just admire that skill, that ability to tell a story through the your voice. And okay, maybe there's there's a a felt uh component to it but her voice she is capturing for me for my ear the french accent the german accent the all of the different pieces of american accents there's the uh taiwanese yes. character mm-hmm. i think she's doing a superb job of this no bill Hader from the saturday Night live sketch Dave. I was thinking more of the, the Catherine Tate sketch where she says that she can speak all the languages at the meeting and they go, oh, good, come in and sit in the meeting. And she just mumbles something inexplicable in something that sounds like a, the racist version of whatever accent she's trying to mimic. And, and everyone at the table is just jaw dropping. What, what are you doing right now? You are mumbling. <laughs> Speaking of Catherine Tate, though, there is
2: a Doctor Who connection to this story. Are, are you shocked? I, I am shocked, <laughs> but but I'm not surprised. We're reading a book, and that if I there's a, if, if there's a chance that Doctor Who can play into <laughs> this, let's go ahead and bring it out.
0: This book is Mary Robinette Kowal's first sci-fi novel, but she wrote plenty of novels before this, oh. and in every one of her books before this, there is one unnamed character who has a cameo in every one of her books and she very specifically describes a unique actor playing Doctor Who who just slips in to her story without being named it's just some random guy one of them's in a scarf one of them's got celery on his lapel and she just moves on there's a Doctor Who connection
2: and and there's the playfulness (laughs) of a writer right? Mm -hmm. Just to throw something random in there so you know, George Lucas puts similar lines in all of his movies. Why? Because there's a there's a playfulness to it.
1: Well, and I think there's some other some other pop culture connections too. There's a moment in this uh, section where Nathaniel is reading the latest Ray Bradbury novel. So I looked at Bradbury's bibliography because I initially thought it's got to be Fahrenheit 451, which came out in 1953, and indeed that would have been the latest. He had he just published some short stories after that, but. But it's interesting, like that's a nice connection because Fahrenheit 451 is often seen as a book about censorship. Montag is a fireman and he burns books instead of saving them. But it's interesting because um, Montag is really impacted by meeting this woman, Clarice, who kind of helps him to see the error of his ways and to sort of get at the, um, the ills of their society. And his wife, Millie, is like an avid TV watcher whose personality is really dulled by the oppressive society in which they live. So it's kind of fun to read this novel. And like the character in the novel is reading one of the major dystopian texts of the period.
0: And there's a connection to TV because Elma goes on to the Mr. Wizard show for a second time. And something we forgot to mention last week, Mr. Wizard... This is a real show. Watch Mr. Wizard was an actual TV program from 1951 to 1965. And the guy who was Mr. Wizard really was a former Air Force commander who turned to TV. This this is one of those moments in the story where we're getting reality mixed
2: with the future. So it was originally on NBC and mm-hmm. the first, looks like five seasons or four seasons in chicago steve
0: and in the book it's still in chicago because in reality it moved to new york why did i say that wrong chicago steve chicago <laughs> <laughs> So she gets a chance to go to chicago in this section chicago. and see our beautiful city
2: the windy city there's <laughs> chicago would you like some sausage
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you guys i didn't know this was a real show i love that thanks for bringing that to us steve i had no idea and it's, it's pretty brilliant to think that
0: she
2: did at least a little bit of research mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. 1950s here. And it grounds you. It anchors mm-hmm. you into the time. So if you're talking Fahrenheit 451 or talking about Mr. Wizard, what you're doing is you have all these things that still evolved as they normally would have in, in our timeline, but in their timeline. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that this brings us to the issue of how feminism is, I mean, that's some of the history that she that she does bring up as well, how feminism goes through as a really serious thread throughout this novel. And so we get the idea, you know, Elma's thinking about the term lady astronaut. So on the one hand, it's really aspirational and exciting, and it gets people, you know, gets young girls to imagine themselves as potential astronauts. But on the other hand, it's also really deflating, because until the very end of this section, it's an impossibility. She's very thoughtful in her analysis of the gender dynamics that she lives within.
2: Isn't it interesting? Because, you know, we had actors and actresses at one time. Mm-hmm. And now we have uh, astronauts. And. <laughs> I made that word up for you. Right, that's good. <laughs> and, 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 and With S, with E, yeah, S. Anyway, no, but now they're all actors. Mm-hmm. So you, you're correct in the sense that, you know, lady astronaut is not the correct term. The term mm-hmm. is astronaut. Absolutely. And, and, and that line between you are
0: the inspiration to these young girls, you are being put on the pedestal so that you can do this, therefore they can do this. That's wonderful. But the other side of that coin is you are somehow secondary because you are divided. This division is not equitable. They're an astronaut. Period. That
2: that may be growth also. I'm going to use race as an example. So uh, um, our character may be Black Panther. Maybe if it was released today, it'd just be Panther or something of that nature, where the name, uh, I'm sorry, the race of a character is not the defining factor. Right. So anyway, it just seems... That you know, we have a lot of evolution and in, in how we use the English language, and this seems to be you know part of the growth of society over time.
0: And I can't say that I don't see your point that this doesn't need to be 1950 for this. It mm-hmm. might have actually been better if it was the struggle in 2018 because we are already into a, a mindset where equality and equity are important to us. And not focused on the 1950s version of that. I, I can't disagree with that.
1: It does allow her to remind us of the history of feminism, which she definitely does throughout. So I mean, I think there are two there are two moments of office politics that I think are really fascinating here. And even though they're very based in the 50s, they're not unfamiliar to women working in offices even today. So there's this great moment where there's a Senate hearing and there's a Senator who seems to not understand what Nathaniel is explaining. And so Elma decides like she is gonna have to go and explain this to him because he is not gonna be able to say, oh, clearly this can't be understood by anyone if it's understandable to a woman. And so, She actually, it's very clever, she makes use of his misogyny to get what she wants in that scene. And she's very charming and clever about it. And she has taken an anti-anxiety pill in order to do that effectively because this is a public speaking engagement, not a flying one. And I think that's very much what second wave feminism was about. It was saying, okay, in first wave, we got the vote great now what do we do with that because now that we have taken care of that obvious inequality there are still a lot of inequalities systemically built into the workplace and we need to address those obviously another one is where we find out why parker has this antipathy toward elma and it's because she reported him for sexual harassment several years ago and he has been he has been holding a grudge against her ever since and so Once again, that's something that I feel like sexual harassment wasn't really reported a lot in the 50s, that kind of feels like going back and rewriting history a little bit, but certainly if it was it wouldn't have been taken, especially seriously.
0: So, but he has a chip on his shoulder because right. of what she decided to do in her very 2018 feminist way. Right. She reported this as, this can't be, this shouldn't be, this, this needs to stop. It, an interesting character part for Parker here is he's only mean to her. Have you noticed that? That he's the mm-hmm. antithesis not necessarily the antagonist here he is only a terrible person to elma he's actually pretty good to everybody else around him
1: And the other thing that kowal does and this is a bit anachronistic but still very valuable is then she brings in third wave feminism specifically with intersectionality and the notion that we do have to think about race as well as gender, well, race and sexuality. Which she doesn't. She doesn't do a, as much with sexuality, but she is really interested in race in a very 21st century way. That brings us to third wave feminism.
0: And again, is that because of the emergency situation? Is that something that would happen if there was an emergency in your town? Would race be forgotten in that emergency situation in 1956? <laughs>
1: Well, not according to Kowal. Right. <laughs> this is, I mean, and and I really liked how she captured Elma's feelings of like white guilt when she does all of these tests. She works her butt off. She absolutely deserves to move to the next level. And then she's in the cafeteria with her friends and they realize, oh, the white women have moved forward and the women of color have not. Mm-hmm. And what The are you, question, the what
2: question I have to think uh, though is: Were Jewish people considered white at that time? And I'm, I'm, and I'm using it. Think of, think of um, Irish people, mm-hmm. or think of Italians. Think of that group of immigrants who came in the time and their assimilation. And I'm using this term like white as, as in its, mm-hmm. as, as you know, just this blanket statement. But certainly. I don't know. It, it certainly was more complicated that at that time. She's simplifying it to a 2018
0: audience for sure. Yes, I agree with you that the idea of the discrimination of Jewish people at that time would be different, and I I don't know the answer, but I. I assume that my grandparents had some degree of discrimination against them speaking, you know, different language, having slightly different features. I assume in that time when they came here after world war two, they were discriminated against and she, okay. Kowal just puts the reader into these are white people from the South, but then there's a lot of, there's a lot of Jewish stuff in this part, huh, Chip? There is. There is. <laughs> so the author is doing a little bit of, of switching there where she, the characters are Jewish, very Jewish sometimes and other times not. I, yeah, I, I see
2: there's it. All, there's a lot at play here. I think it, it could have been fleshed out, maybe a little cleaner. Um, but you know what? We're, we're, we're in a, um, what I would say is a pop book. Yeah. And it's, you know, as I would say, we need to move the story along. And you guys are like, give me more characters. And I'm going, just let's move the story along. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's get to Mars.
0: Right. Isn't that the goal? For a pop book, it. It is certainly one of the award-winning books that I actually enjoy because it's pop enough mm-hmm. and literary enough for me. It, it is that, that very narrow uh,
2: band between those two things. And when I say pop, I, what I'm meaning a lot is like Stephen King mm-hmm. and uh, Dan Brown and Michael Crichton and, and the idea of th- these books are meant to like move you along and uh, they're, they're meant for the general audience.
1: I agree. But I'm with in thinking that I think she really does capture that middle ground where she manages to have really good pacing as well as good character development and pointing but not leaning too hard into really important cultural uh, and philosophical issues. So I think it's a really well done story.
0: And this section comes to an end and we're we're nearly wow we're nearly at the end of our exploration of this book completely. Next week is their last week with this book, but this section comes to an end here. Right Pam?
1: Well, yeah, and I think it points it points all of us to like an exciting close which I'm imagining Chip you'll enjoy as well. So, Elma's just just getting to the end of her astronaut testing. And she says, "When I was sweaty, tired and annoyed, they gave me written tests about orbital mechanics." With each round, there were fewer and fewer of us. Some hadn't been able to get through a crucial part of the testing. I nearly didn't make it through the run uphill and other women changed their minds. Those of us who stayed though had an odd mix of camaraderie and fierce competitiveness. We were after all pilots. And I kind of like that as a chapter close that leads us to the final quarter of the book because now we have this idea They're about to be transformed from pilots to astronauts. And of course, it makes sense to look to your pilots when you're looking for who do we want to be astronauts? But like, it's a very, very different thing. And so that notion of camaraderie and competitiveness, like these are strong, fierce women. It's going to be pretty cool.
2: And I keep thinking of those um, specialized military organizations, Navy SEALs where the people are always prompting you, you know, Steve, you, you can quit, Pam, you, you can quit anytime you want to. And then at the same time, you're the person sitting next to you is like, no, hold on, keep going, keep going. Yeah. Because what it what is it? It's that endurance. Can you continue and move to the next step? That is the difference between a person who makes it through like a Navy SEAL program, and a person who is really, really good, but just not quite there yet Hmm. that 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 is you're moving to the elite and astronauts have got to be considered the elite of the elite Mm -hmm. so that is going to propel us that's an astronaut
0: pun into (laughs) into the fourth part of this book the final few chapters your assignment for next week is chapters 30 through 39 the end of this story and we'll see how far we can get those those that's a lot
2: of astronaut words there
0: we'll see how we'll see how far we can get
1: as boldly as we can
2: gene roddenberry is going to be very happy i think is he's smiling
0: down on us as we're reading this utopia dystopia with with a, a whole batch of armageddon including bruce willis we've we've this book's got it all
2: <laughs> and a bar mitzvah there you go well you know we gotta have a party
0: Oh, there's a party. That's good. (laughs) Time for a party for sure. (laughs) I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think?
2: Only if we can come back next week, Pam.
1: Agree. I'm in.
0: We're going to finish this up. We're going to get to the next book and then uh, see where we can go from there. We We can come back and be in the studio. This is
2: fantastic, Chip. Glad to see you. I, i'm i'm happy to be here just like the old days steve just like the old days. pre-pandemic <laughs> the before the before days <laughs> so so our assignment is to read this go out and hug a bunch of people shake some hands and go meet some people and then we'll record on pam's deck in connecticut
1: Yes. Excellent.
0: <laughs> we would love to hear from you. What are you doing? How are you doing? Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805 Our website is sandwichesatirregularhours.com. Our email is sandwichesatirregularhours at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. We, we'd love to hear from you. We would love to see you. Hopefully we'll see each other very soon. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Irregular
2: Hours. I'm Steve Foder. I'm Maskless Chip Plus.
1: And I'm Pam We'll
2: see you in the future.